Let me pray. Loving Father, we ask now that as we come to your word that you would help us understand the world of the first Christians so that we might see what you did and how you did it and how you continue to do things in this world today, knowing what you are like and what we are like. Help us by your spirit to know you better, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've seen in the last two months that God did some amazing things to pour fuel on the fire of the early church so that the whole land would be set alight with the wonderful news of Jesus. The Holy Spirit was poured out in Jerusalem and then in Samaria and then in Caesarea as the news of Jesus rippled out from that epicenter. And today we're going to see that there's a new hub of Christianity in a place called Antioch. Antioch. And this is where the modern Turkish city of Antakya is found. <coughs> Excuse me. The modern Turkish city of Antakya, at the very bottom of Turkey, on a river inland from the Mediterranean Sea. So Antioch, it's about 700 kilometres north of Jerusalem, uh, which would take about 10 hours to drive if you drove non-stop. Uh, I presume that they normally travelled by ship, but if they did walk, then it would have been a journey that took probably two or three weeks in all. Now, why does this matter? It's because Antioch is a very strategic location. It's the natural hub for the whole of the Roman Empire. In fact, it was known as the third city of the Roman Empire, only surpassed by Alexandria down in Egypt and, of course, Rome itself. There were half a million people there. That's a lot of people. That's a really big city at that time. And there, it was kind of one of the most cosmopolitan, multicultural places on the planet. There were people there from Persia, people there from India. There were even people there from China. And it had a large colony of Jews as well. Now, if you're a history buff, you're probably just lapping this up and loving this. If you're not, you're thinking... Well, that's nice, but it's a bit boring when you get on with it. Well, let me say, it is relevant to us today because God moved the gospel up to the new hub of Antioch so that the church might spread from that point all around the world. He took the gospel to a really, really multicultural place and a really, really strategic place. And this is one of the many times when God put his people in the right place at the right time so that the church could grow faster and wider. Today we often think about strategies for church growth. And this is because we want to be strategic in our outreach. Uh, After all, we've only got limited resources and we want to put our people in the most productive places. Now, this is one of the reasons that the first minister that we employed here in our church in recent years was Rain, our youth minister. Apart from the fact that Rain's just Rain, she's awesome. Uh, She has a focus on youth and also on children in our church. And this is because um, we know that more than two-thirds of Christians say that they become Christians before they're adults. Interesting, isn't it? Uh, Put your hand up. I'll do a little survey. If you became a follower of Jesus before you you were 18 years of age. Yeah, it's about two-thirds or so, hands down. Quite a lot. And that's a fairly common statistic. And what's more, if we don't have a focused ministry for youth in our church, then often what happens is families will leave 
a church like that and go and find a church where there is a focus on youth because they need their kids to be given the gospel and growing up in that. Um, they want their teenage kids to, to get to a church where they're going to be nurtured through those tricky years of puberty. But it's also a reason that we put energy into university ministry uh, because it's a time in a person's life when they're questioning big things and making big decisions that will affect their whole life. Uh, Mandy and I had the chance a couple of months ago to go and be grilled in front of about 100 uni students at Wollongong Uni uh, on a sort of a question and answer night. And they threw their questions at us and we were part of a panel of three answering all sorts of things on lots of curly questions. And they were really interested in the questions, and they were really good questions, almost as good as the Jambrew Anglican questions that we get here week in, week out. And they were wanting to know stuff. We put energy into university ministry because it's a strategic time. And we put energy into our local school right here across the fence and our other schools in this area because we know that children's ministry, school's ministry, is a way that we can get in and talk to young people about Jesus and get things into the classroom that they otherwise wouldn't have. That's one of the great things about SRE. Now, why am I telling you all this? Well, we are kind of like an army at war. We've only got so many soldiers, and we can only fight so many battles at a time, humanly speaking. So we've got to put our soldiers in the right spots. That's what strategic thinking is all about. And that's why it's good to think strategically as a church, in the same way God strategically moved the hub of Christianity to Antioch. Now, having said that, it doesn't mean that we stop doing things that appear less strategic, not at all, uh, like ministry to people who are older than 18. Put your hand up if you are older than 18. Uh, we love you. We want to minister to you, okay? I love you ministry to me as well. <laughs> so we, we do that as well. But the point is that in times throughout the Bible and in the modern times as well, we see that God puts the right people in the right place. And that is what we see here today in this particular chapter of the book of Acts. We're going to see that the expansion to Antioch has brought great opportunities for growth. And we'll see how this new growth has led to powerful opposition as well. Because as you grow, you get noticed. Bad Herod-type people notice you and they try and shut you down. And that's what we saw as well. And it all begins in chapter 11, verse 19, with a scattering. We read that, meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. There it is. They preached the word of God, but only to Jews. Uh, the gospel of Jesus was on the move. They had that persecution where Stephen got stoned to death and they scattered and they've gone everywhere. And that's what we're seeing right here. They've gone to Judea, Samaria, Caesarea, and now they keep going further and further. In particular, we see that the church heads north. It heads north. And now Peter has preached to Cornelius the Gentile. The message now travels to everyone, not just the Jews. And so 20 and 21, we read that some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. The power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. Isn't that awesome? The Gentiles, the, the non-Jewish people, were now hearing about Jesus and were saying, this makes sense, I want to follow Jesus. And we read that a large number of them 
believed and turned to the Lord Jesus. And so all the way up the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea, right down from the bottom in Egypt, all the way up, we see people coming to know the Lord Jesus and being saved. What we're seeing is a real decentralised, organic growth. And it's kind of a little bit like... Well, it's a positive version of the negative of like gossip around a high school, you know, or, or maybe a fire in a drought-affected bush. You know, the, the word of Jesus just took off and spread out. But it's not really closely managed. You, you, you know when the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door, they're, they're kind of like speaking a script. It's all monitored and handed down to them from head office. You must say this, you must say that. That's not what was happening here at all. They had the words of the apostles and they got out there, they just said, Jesus is Lord, and away they went. He's the Messiah. So what's head office in Jerusalem, as it still was, what are they going to think about all of this? Well, verse 22, we read that when the church at Jerusalem heard what had happened, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Uh, Well, they wanted to connect the established church back at Jerusalem with what was happening 700 kilometres away up north in Antioch and how are they going to do that? Well, they can't just get on the phone. You know, they can't just have a FaceTime session or, or they can't send them a fax or an email or a, or a letter. You know, it, it's kind of, well, they could send them a letter, but it'll take a long time. It, how do they actually see with their own eyes what is happening? They've got to send someone up there. So they send Mr. Encouragement himself, Barnabas, to check things out. They sent Barnabas to supervise. I wonder what he was thinking as he was making this long journey. Would this Christianity be authentic? Had they missed some of the key points? So they got some bits wrong that they said, oh, look, the whole resurrection of Jesus was just a bit weird. We'll just drop that and just talk about the cross thing. Or had they distorted it at all? I wonder what he was thinking as he was going up there on his trip. Had they actually received the Holy Spirit in the same way? Or were they just going it alone? What was exactly happening there? Well, they're going to find out, and Barney is the man. He is Mr. Encouragement, as his nickname goes, and he's going there to find out. And this is what happened, verse 23. When he arrived and saw this evidence of God's blessing, he was filled with joy, and he encouraged encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. Barney was stoked. God was blessing the new converts to Christ right up there in Antioch. And it made Barnabas full of joy. And his message was simple to them. His message was, stay true to the Lord. Other translations might say, stay faithful. Uh, Faithful truth is something. I kind of like this little slogan we've got here, stay true to the Lord. I I don't know if you ever say that as you're writing a text to someone who's a Christian or an email or something like that, saying, stay true to the Lord. I kind of like that. Stay true to the Lord. Stay faithful to what you were taught. Stay true to the gospel that you've received. Don't tweak it. Don't change it. Don't mess it up. Stay connected to the apostolic teaching. And they would remain faithful to what they were taught, live it out. And he demonstrated how that looked by the way that he lived. Because he read in verse 24 that Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and strong in faith. And many people were brought to the Lord. He goes up there to check things out. And through that, he's able to encourage them all and more and more people come to know the Lord Jesus. Just awesome news. Great things were happening there in Antioch as people met Jesus by his spirit. But, but at this point of the story in the book of Acts, you kind of feel like 
someone important is missing from the action. Someone should be there, but they're sort of missing, AWOL. And that is Saul. And so Barnabas, even though he is the guy who's having this great leadership to the Gentiles at this point, he knows that Saul, who's had this dramatic conversion, has been given this special role of being the preacher, the apostle to the Gentiles. So he goes, we read in verse 25, Barnabas went on to Tarsus to look for Saul. He travelled another 200 kilometres around the top of the Mediterranean Sea to go to this hometown of Saul. Barnabas sought out Saul because he was of the mind that now things were really cooking when it came to the Gentile mission. They needed to get the cook into the kitchen. They needed to get Saul, who really understood how things went from Jewish to Gentile. He understood all of that and they needed him there. You remember that Saul was sent up to Tarsus, his homeland, because things got really dicey down in Jerusalem. They wanted to kill him off. And so he thought, they said, look, he is too valuable an asset. We need to hide him away. And so he was up there for a while. I wonder, as you're reading through the book of Acts, if you didn't know what the time was, what you naturally would think would be the the kind of, how long has it been that Saul's been up there? Well, it turns out it's been seven or eight years at this point. You wouldn't necessarily think that, but when you do all the timing and you look at the book of Galatians and you, you work other things, that's quite a long time, isn't it? Seven or eight years he's been up there. And he spent some time in Arabia. He's really got his head. He would have read the Old Testament over and over and over and over and, and understood more of how the gospel of Jesus connects in with what's been taught throughout the Old Testament. Anyway... In that time, we read in the book of Galatia, the, uh, Galatians that he's been preaching in parts of Syria and Cilicia and all sorts of other things. But right now, he needs to be in Antioch. And so, verse 26, when Barnabas found Saul, he brought him back to Antioch. Both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. And it was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. Paul comes back with Barnabas. They teach lots and lots of people, big crowds, you'd think, like maybe thousands of people at a time. Tell us the great news about Jesus and how it all works. And right here, they get the name, we get the name Christians. In Antioch, we are named Christians. Before that, we were called the way, or we were called believers, or disciples, or saints. There were all these different ways that the Christians were described, but In this particular spot, it seems that the Christians may well have been given this name by the outsiders who actually said, you're not a Herodian, you're a Christian. You're a person who's a Christ person. And so we're going to call you a Christian, a Christian. And that's when they were named that. And that's why we are named that today, because we're all on about Christ as they were there. And so in this whole time, so much has happened here. The gospel in the seven years since Paul has has been converted and commissioned has now gone hundreds and hundreds of kilometres away and thousands and thousands around the Mediterranean and beyond have become Christians. It's very exciting. And at this time, we read that there was a special group of people who came up from Jerusalem to Antioch. Okay, Verse 27, during this time, some prophets travelled from Jerusalem to Antioch. Okay, 700 kilometres, you know, 
Jerusalem was the hub. Now Antioch's the hub, but Jerusalem's still got a piece of the action. It's kind of, that's where it's sort of working. And we're told that these prophets come. We don't know much about them, but it does feel that they're more like your old school kind of prophets who will talk about the future. And we read in verse 28 that one of them named Agabus stood up in one of the meetings and predicted by the Spirit that a great famine was coming upon the entire Roman world. This was fulfilled during the reign of Claudius. Uh, What we have here is Agabus gets up and says there's going to be this bad famine. And it's the Spirit indeed that leads him to say that. So through him, the Holy Spirit warns of a famine. And Luke notes that this actually happened. It was a global food shortage, a real problem. And everyone would be affected. We don't know quite why the Christian church back in Jerusalem was so badly affected. Maybe it's because they gave everything away already, which is awesome. But anyway, now they're in a bit of a mess. And so because they tested this prophecy and they believed it to be true, that it was really from the Holy Spirit, they acted upon it. In verse 29, we read that the believers in Antioch decided to send relief to the brothers and sisters in Judea everyone giving as much as they could. Now, just stop and think about this for a moment. It's not like they all hung out together all the time. They're 700 kilometres away from each other. They're very disconnected. And yet they know that these brothers and sisters 700 kilometres away are in dire straits. And so they don't just sort of pass around a hat and throw in some loose coins. It's like... They sacrificially gave. They gave as much as they possibly could. Their generosity was sacrificial. It's a great model for us, isn't it? As we think about our own generosity to Christian brothers and sisters in need, we we kind of think that we've got a picture of what it takes. It's like they're in need. Let's do the best we can. I doubt that they took out a calculator or an abacus or whatever, and tried to work out a 10% or something. I don't think they did. I think they just said, these guys are in need. We've got to give all we can. Isn't that interesting? All these people so far away, so disconnected, are actually connected to them in a way that brings out their deep generosity. They just gave generosity because they'd received generosity. And it seemed that... This new group of Christians understood generosity very well. Verse 30, because this they did, entrusting their gifts to Barnabas and Saul to take to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. They decide that they want to make sure the money gets down safely. But more than that, they actually want to send Barnabas and Saul, who at that time were in the middle of a very important preaching ministry up there in Antioch. They said, there's something they've got to do. They've got to take all of this generous money down the 700 kilometres back to Jerusalem. They saw that their giving was actually a partnership. It's not like giving money, it's like, oh, take that and do with it what you want and, you know, you guys over there need it, we're here, off you go. It was a real connection there, a partnership. See, we, we give thousands of dollars a year to mission around the world and locally as well. And that's, we have thousands from within our own church budget, but thousands, I expect, from beyond that, from our own personal giving. We do that as partners. They are mission partners. 
Uh, so e even just this last week, I received a secure WhatsApp message from our missionary over, over in the Middle East. And she was telling me about a bit of a crisis over there that, that certain people who might be spying out what she's doing over there have been particularly alerted to things that are happening. She, she tells us that. She says, would you please pray? And, and I think that's something we'll do a little bit later on when rain leads us. We need to be praying forward right now in that particular spot because those who hate Jesus and hate the gospel want to shut down her ministry and the ministry that she's involved with over there. And she said, would you please pray? Now, why, does that, why do we feel that? It's because we're partners with her. We send our money, but we do that with our prayers and with our lives. And so we, we are invested deeply there because she is a sister in Christ. There's a partnership there that we see today, but we saw it modelled for us back with Barnabas and Saul heading down south. Anyway, off they go, heading down to Jerusalem. And we don't see them for a little while. But you see at that point that things look pretty good for the church, don't they? They're growing. Exciting things are happening. There's that sense of partnership. There's a spread of the gospel. And right from this moment of great opportunity, we now see opposition. Chapter 12, verse 1. About that time, King Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers in the church. Herod Agrippa is the nephew of Herod Antipas, who was the one who knew and tried Jesus. These Herods are bad news. And so Herod Agrippa, who we read here, knows about the Christians and he wants to make sure that anything that would possibly rock the boat of good order in the Roman Empire is shut down. doesn't want some sort of bunch of crazy Christ people going around and, and stirring things up. He wants everybody to be worshipping Herod, worshipping Caesar. And so because of this, he launches a persecution. He launches a persecution, and the persecution is sharp and shocking. Verse 2, he had the apostle James, John's brother, killed with a sword. Uh, how was he killed? Where was he killed? I don't know, but you, you think it may well be the same way as John the Baptist. Beheaded, quite possibly. He's put to death in a shocking way. And Herod is on the rampage, verse 3. When Herod saw how much this pleased the Jewish people, he also arrested Peter. And this took place during the Passover celebration. See, James was a high-stakes victim, but there's someone even more important, and that is the Apostle Peter. Remember, Peter's the guy who... Well, we've heard about Peter heaps over the last couple of weeks, haven't we? That's this Peter. But it's all happened at the time of Passover, and Herod is trying to do two things. He's trying to make the Roman Empire people happy, and he's also trying to make the Jews happy. So what he doesn't want to do is do a big, huge trial and execution of Peter during Passover. It's just not the done thing. And so what does he do? Verse 4, he imprisoned him, placing him under the guard of four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring Peter out for public trial after the Passover. Because of the timing, Peter doesn't lose his head. He loses his freedom. And so what we see is that, Saul, that, that Herod killed James and imprisoned Peter. He imprisoned Peter. It was good for the Romans. And it was good for the Jews. 
It was just the same attitude when they crucified Jesus, wasn't it? Under the same circumstances. And yet at this same time, we read in verse 5, that while Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly for him. Oh, I'm sure they did. If you knew that Peter, the great Peter, the one that Jesus said, you know, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. That Peter, the famous Peter, is now in prison. And look what Herod's just done to James. And you're thinking, Peter is going to cop it for sure. And the church gets together and it says, we will pray. We will pray earnestly. It doesn't say specifically what they prayed for him, but they prayed for him. Uh, What would you pray for him? Lord, spare his life. Get him out of prison. Please, Lord. We don't know how, but please do it. It might seem like it's just the, the last hope, but really prayer is the first thing that we, we have as a, a means of power. Or if we speak to God and says, would you please do this? It's such a powerful thing. But for them, it was really a, it was the only thing they could do for Peter. Because we read verse 6 that the night before Peter was to be placed on trial, he was asleep, fastened with two chains between two soldiers. Others stood guard at the prison gate. Okay, They They are saying, we are not going to let this guy get away. We are going to have Peter in the middle, and on one side we are going to have one guard chained to him, and another guard chained to him. And then we're going to protect this area with two other guards. Now, we are not going to let the same thing happen to this guy that happened to the other apostles many years before. He is under super maximum security. Escape seemed impossible, humanly speaking. Because in verse 7 we read that suddenly there was a bright light in the cell and an angel of the Lord stood before Peter. The angel struck him on the side to awaken him. That's how deep sleep he was in. And said, quick, get up. And the chains fell off his wrists. I love it that Peter is so relaxed at this point that he's sleeping that soundly. What would you be like if you were in that situation thinking that tomorrow is probably going to be the day that you are tried and executed? Sleepless night? Not Peter. He is snoozing. And he has to, it's like, lights are on. He's just, it's like, wake up. He, he needs a real prod, a strike from the side from the angel to wake, wake up, Peter. Where am I? What's happening? And so this happens. And then, as we see here, the angel wakes Peter and the angel frees him. He frees him. Verse 8, the angel told him, get dressed and put on your sandals. Peter did. Now put on your coat. And follow me, the angel ordered. So Peter left the cell following the angel. But all the time he thought it was a vision. He didn't realise it was actually happening. I mean, it would be a sweet dream, wouldn't it? If you were there, Peter, locked up, you're thinking, this would never happen in real life. But I'm having this lovely, blissful dream of, of being released and walking out of prison and putting my shoes on and my cloak on and away. Oh, what a dream that would be. And I just have it as a dream. And so that happens. And then, verse 10, they passed the first and second guard posts. (laughs) And they came to the iron gate leading to the city. And this opened for them all by itself. Whoa. And they go through it. And they pass through and started walking down the street. 
And then the angel suddenly left him. <laughs> He's standing there thinking, what the heck has just happened? Verse 11, he finally comes to his senses. It's really true, he said. The Lord has sent his angel and saved me from Herod and from what the Jewish leaders had planned to do to me. This is not just a dream. It is true. This is not like Dorothy with her red shoes or some scene out of Inception. This is kind of like the real, real thing. Peter is amazed and rejoices in his salvation. You'd think that those Herod types would learn their lesson, wouldn't they? <laughs> they try and kill off Christ and Christianity, and it only ends up badly. But with this exciting freedom, we read, verse 12, that when he realised this, he went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered for prayer. He went to kind of like the, the headquarters there in Jerusalem, Christianity. There was a prayer vigil happening there. That's where they were all earnestly praying. Now, it seemed impossible that there'd be any way that he'd get out alive. It seemed impossible that he would be saved. His death seemed as certain as James' beheading. And yet, the angel released him, and it is a miracle. Peter's release is a miracle. And so, verse 13, he knocks at the door and the gate... And a servant girl named Rhoda came to open it. Hello? When she recognised Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the door, she ran back inside and told everyone, Peter is standing at the door. It's classic stuff. She is so overwhelmed by seeing Peter. It's like, it's the Peter. Woohoo! Slams his phone and then goes back and talks to everybody inside. Peter's outside the courtyard, fair game for anyone who might come and arrest him. And she just slams the door back on his face and runs inside and tells them all, everybody is praying. And they say, verse 15, you're out of your mind. But when she insisted, they decided, oh, it must be his angel. (laughs) What are they doing, these Christians, they're praying for a miracle, aren't they? They're praying for something extraordinary, something where the the so-called laws of nature will be bent and smashed, that that someone who, who, humanly speaking, could absolutely have no certainty of survival, they're praying that he might get out. They're praying for him. And then they hear of the miracle, and what do they say? Oh, it can't be true. You think it's a little bit ironic? I wonder if I would have done the same thing. I reckon I probably would have. You know, sometimes we, we pray and pray and pray for something miraculous, and then when it happens, we say, oh, well, it can't be a miracle. You know, we're praying for rain and rain and rain and rain and rain and rain, and then the heavens open up and we get rain and we say, oh, well, that just must be the weather patterns. It's like we, we're asking God for it. Well, you hear of a story of somebody who... Well, I'll, I'll tell you about a friend of ours, uh, Jude Stacey. Uh, Jude is married to Pete Stacey, who's uh, a minister over at Shell Harbour City Anglican Church. Uh, Jude has had very serious pancreatic cancer, uh, as bad as it gets. And years ago, she had a, an operation and she was not expected to live very long at all. And we've been praying and praying and praying and praying for her. And she is still alive. And we've been praying that she would actually 
be cured of this cancer, which it just seems impossible. But we're praying. We, we didn't think that she was going to make her birthday party a couple of months ago. They called it off, and then they put it back on again. And she's still alive. And she's still running the park run on Saturday mornings over at Shell Harbour. Amazing. Now, what will the Lord do? Will, will he cure her and will she live to a ripe old age? We don't know. But as we see every day given to her, we might say, oh, it must be the experimental treatment she's receiving. Or, or may, maybe it's just the fact that she's eating her vegetables. Or, or I don't know. What, we might put it down to something. Why don't we say the Lord has given her these days? The Lord has given her healing for now. And he may give her a miraculous healing. We don't know. But why is it we naturally say, oh, it's just isn't medical science amazing? Well, it is, but miracles happen. And this is what we see here. And all of these knucklehead Christians, I would have been the same. It's like, no, can you go and check again? It might be the pizza guy. I don't know. But, and they say it couldn't happen. But verse 16, meanwhile, Peter continues knocking. Can you let me in? <laughs> and they finally opened the door and they saw him. They were amazed. Of course they were amazed. Idiots. I would, I would have been them too. It's like, I couldn't possibly. It's his angel. Right. They finally believe the miracle. Like doubting Thomas, putting his fingers in Jesus' side and his hands. It's like, okay, I really believe now. What an idiot I was to doubt. They believe the miracle. And so they must have just been going berserk. And so verse 17, he says, he motioned for them to quiet down. It's like, guys, do you want me to get arrested again? Just calm down. And then he told them how the Lord had led him out of prison. He says, tell James and the other brothers what happened. And then he went to another place. I bet he did. <laughs> Get me out of here. He was saved. Sadly, the soldiers, who were just trying to do their job, uh, they didn't fare so well. Because we read in verse 18, at dawn there was a great commotion among the soldiers about what had happened to Peter. Where did he go? I don't know. I thought you had him. I thought you had him. I don't know. Where is he? I don't know. Herod Agrippa ordered a thorough search for him. When he couldn't be found, Herod interrogated the guards and sentenced them to death. Afterwards, Herod left Judea to stay in Caesarea for a while. I don't know why he suddenly went to Caesarea. Maybe he was embarrassed about what had happened there in Judea, but off he goes to this Roman hub, which is actually the same place that we met Cornelius last week, right? He has tried his hardest to shut down Christianity by shutting down the leaders. And in the end, this Herod as well failed to harm Christianity. Whether it was the Herod who tried to kill all the babies, including Jesus, or whether it's the Herod who cut the head off John the Baptist, or whether it's this Herod, it's like, you Herods are losers. You keep trying to shut down Christianity. Why don't you learn that you can't? But before this ends, as it could just end here, there's an interesting little cameo about what happens to Herod. Because we read that Herod was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. So they sent a delegation to make peace with him because their cities were dependent upon Herod's country for food. A little domestic tiff, blah, blah, blah. But why is this important? Well, these people who are at war kind of with Herod want to make up so that they can get some food because they're pretty hungry. And so anyway, we read that the delegates won the support of Blastus, who was Herod's PA. And an appointment with Herod was granted. Terrific. Can I just get 15 minutes in his diary? Oh, no. Please, please. Okay, in the diary. 
And when the day arrived, Herod put on his royal robes, sat on his royal throne and made a royal speech. He was going to go triple royal. It's like I'm going to do all stops to make my royalness very clear to this group of people up there that I don't really like. But they have an audience with him, and it seems to go really, really well. And the response was overwhelming. Verse 22, the people gave him a great ovation, shouting, it's the voice of a god, not of a man. They liked Herod an awful lot. They said, you're a god. And what did Herod do? He loved it. I'll bring it on. You want to call me a god? I can be king. I can be god, whatever you like. Let me say, if anyone ever calls you a god, don't accept that as being a a good thing. Don't say, thank you for worshipping me as god. It doesn't tend to go well. Uh, It didn't go very well for King Nebuchadnezzar in the time of Daniel. That was a bad day at the office. And it's not going to go very well for King Herod either. No matter how delusional a person is, they should never, ever accept the worship of a person who says that they are god. Verse 23, instantly an angel of the Lord struck Herod with a sickness because he accepted the people's worship instead of giving the glory to God. So he was consumed with worms and died. Um, Josephus, who was a Roman um, historian, talks about this as well. We're not entirely sure of all the medical details. We know that Luke was a doctor, so he would have known a bit of the details. But it seems that there was a pretty horrible obstruction in the stomach bits that kind of probably caused him to have a slow and painful death. Tell you what, if someone calls you God, give the glory to God. You never know what will happen with the worms. And that is because the true God won't tolerate competition. And rightly so. King Nebuchadnezzar ended up badly and others did and do and will, whether it's in this life or it's in the next. Because when these rulers stand before the true living God on the day of judgment and and God says, so you accepted worship as God, how did that go? Because now I'm judging you and it won't go well at all. Others will suffer, some will suffer a fate just like Herod though, in this life. He tried to shut down Christianity by killing the leaders and that backfired on him. And in the meanwhile, we read in the final verse that the word of God continued to spread and there were many new believers. Isn't that awesome? You know, it's hard to find any positive merit in persecution. When we get together to pray on a Saturday morning, we don't normally say, dear Lord, please send persecution. I think that's the right thing to pray because I don't think you really want to be persecuted. But when persecution happens, it just seems that persecution grows the church. Really, what Herod should have done is said, I'm just going to step away and ignore these Christians. These crazy Christians can do their crazy stuff and it'll just fizz out. But he goes all prancing around, chopping people's heads off and things like that. And all it does is send the place crazy. The gospel goes out more and more and more. And the church grows. And as we seek to glorify God, we need to realise that persecution is to be expected in big ways or small ways. But whatever happens, 
we must bring God the glory, knowing that he is the one who is building the church, who is being strategic, and sometimes that strategy comes from persecution. Let me pray. Our loving Father, we are so thankful for the perseverance of the saints, the people who continue to remain faithful to you despite persecution that is extreme. And we do pray, Lord, that they would remain faithful to you during those difficult times. Father, would you protect us from persecution unless, Lord, you intend to bring it to us for your glory, in which case, Father, we ask that you would help us to persevere as well. May we never shy away from standing up for Christ. And Lord, at the same time, may we never, ever take the glory that you deserve. And we pray, Father, for our leaders, our rulers, the the kings and presidents and prime ministers and governors and all these key people. We pray, Lord, that they would never, ever give in to the temptation of receiving the the worship that you deserve, that indeed they would recognise that you are Lord. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.